thinking this is going to be about a three-hour message. <laughs> ah, just kidding. <clears throat> uh, how long? Uh, psalm 13, to the chief musician, the psalm of David. So David is the author of this psalm as well. Uh, he is a, of at least half the psalms. Uh, when David wrote, he often wrote, it seems intentionally, for corporate worship. The psalms were essentially songs. That's why we call it the songbook of God's people, the Old Testament. Uh, the psalms uh, were really the songbook. Uh, this psalm is addressed to the chief musician, perhaps a leader of uh, choirs or musicians in David's time. But it's almost as though David anticipated that the experiences that he was going through were to be used of the Lord in a broader way. And this, of course, proved to be true as God inspired them, and they became part of the canon of Scripture. Uh, you'll note uh, the outline uh, there, the theme, how long, and then the outline, verses 1 and 2, David's lament of how long, uh, verses 3 and 4, David's petition, and then verses 5 and 6, uh, David's declaration of trust. Well, let's get into it. Verse 1, how long, O Lord, will, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Uh, right out of the gate here, uh, you really get the feeling that David is down and discouraged. And uh, where is God when I need him? Two of the most important or prominent, I should say, laments of God's people are why, as we saw in Psalm 10, and how long, as we see here in Psalm 13. Often we can't understand the why of trouble. And then when we are in the throes of it, we cry out, how long? Well, David felt like he was kind of at the end of his rope as he cried out, how long? Sometimes uh, troublesome times seem to linger forever. And we feel we just can't take it any longer. I think David was kind of at that point. Now give David credit. He took his lament to the right place, right? Uh, what follows how long? How long? Well, Lord, uh, he's bringing it to the Lord. He hasn't lost his faith, but I think he is weary and he's discouraged. And he feels like God has forgotten him. Now, that's a terrible feeling. He cried out, will you forget me forever? It's like, God, you have really kind of set me on the back burner here, and I just feel forgotten. Is this never going to end? Is this going to go on indefinitely? This is how David felt in the struggle. Now, we don't know the specific occasion when David wrote this psalm, but uh, it may well have been, and many commentators guess that very possibly it was uh, during that long period of time when he was on the run from King Saul, uh, running for his life. I mean, this went on for year after year after year. You, David was a very young man when he was anointed to be the next king over Israel by the prophet Samuel. Uh, many scholars think he was perhaps 15 or 17 years old, very young. I mean, very, very young man. And, uh, but then uh, we read in 2 Samuel 5, 4, that David actually became king when he was 30 years old. Well, let's say just for the sake of math here, that he was 15 when he was anointed king, and he's 30 when he actually becomes king. What's happening during those 15 years? Well, perhaps we think about for 10 of those years, he's on the run for his life, right? That very well could be uh, the, the context here. But again, we're not told specifics. But you can see that very possibly Psalm 13 could have been written during this long period of time. I mean, if you're promised to be the king, when you're 15, 
And 12 years later, you're seemingly no closer to the throne and are constantly being hounded and threatened. It's easy to understand how David might begin to uh, wonder, how long is this going to go on? And often during this time, David's life was threatened. Uh, We read, for example, in... 1 Samuel 20, verse 3, Then David took an oath again and said, "Uh, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. Of course, he's talking to Jonathan. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. So David, I mean, humanly speaking, like, boy, this is, I'm I'm walking a tightrope here. And, uh, you know, I'm like a step away from being killed. Well, when you feel God's presence, you feel strong. Uh, You sense God is with you. It bolsters you up. But even for the strongest of saints, there are times when we don't sense God's presence. We feel like we're kind of on our own out there in the wilderness, which is where uh, David was uh, much of this time. Of course, it's not true. God hasn't really forgotten us. But in our frailty, the frailty of our humanity, we may feel this way. David was a great man of God, but you know what? He was also very human. And of course, as I say, these are only feelings, but feelings are part of our experience. There's no question about that. We can't go by mere feelings, but, which is part of the lesson of this psalm, by the way. But feelings are a real part of the human experience. The struggles we go through often involve feelings. It's part of being human. Frail humans uh, in fallen world, in a fallen world. Uh, David then, for the second time, asked, how long? How long will you hide your face from me? Someone has said this psalm might well be titled, When God Hides His Face. You know, when God hides his face uh, represents a very dark time. And we love the blessing of number six, right? I mean, I love this blessing. I used to say this over my kids a lot of times at bedtime. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But what if a person doesn't sense this? That's really hard. Uh, God's face represents his presence. And God's face hidden means we don't see his intervention. God warned his people in the Old Testament that if they forsook him, he would hide his face from them. Uh, For example, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done in that they have turned to other gods. And, of course, this came to pass. God hiding his face from Israel resulted in them being taken into captivity, eventually being scattered throughout the world. The times of the Gentiles is essentially a time when God's face is hidden from Israel. It's a time when God's direct miraculous intervention on Israel's behalf is not overtly seen. I mean, in the Exodus, it was overtly on display. It's got intervened in miraculous ways to where even the Egyptians could no longer uh, deny it. And, say, and they said, this is the finger of God. But when God's face is hidden, we don't see that. 
And that's the way it is today. So much so in Israel that a, a large majority of the Jews no longer even believe in God. They don't believe in the God of their fathers. Where is he? Okay, we got these stories from long ago, but we don't see intervention. And they consequently think they're a self-made people. But boy, are they wrong. The unseen arm of God has sovereignly and providentially preserved them as a people. And yet to this day, he allows them to languish under the heel of the Gentiles during these times of the Gentiles. This will finally begin to come to an end in the tribulation period when God's face will no longer be hidden. This will happen when God intervenes in a huge and undeniable manner in the destruction of Gog and Magog. In that day, even the Gentiles will get it, certainly to some extent. They will get that God's face had previously been hidden from Israel because of their sin. We read in Ezekiel 39, The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. So we can't understand God hiding his face from people when they're in sin. I mean, that, that makes sense. But what about when they're not? What about when you have a situation like David, where there's no apparent sin in view? You know, sometimes even the godliest of saints go through a dark time when it feels like God's face is hidden from them. A time they don't see his hand seemingly move on their behalf. Well, even here, God has his sovereign purposes. You know, Job had an experience like this, right? Yeah, he did. Uh, why? I mean, that's Job's really th uh, question. Uh, where is God? How long? Sometimes when a believer is going through a prolonged dark experience, it's easy to think they must have sin in their lives. And that this is the cause. I mean, that was Job's friends, right? There's something here. Let's look under that rock. Let's look, there's got to be something here. They were trying to find it. But maybe not. Maybe it's not a sin issue. Remember, uh, we have the story of, of the man who was born blind in John 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Wow, who, who'd have thought it? Uh, you know, we have a little child born blind. God's got a special purpose for this child. Well, he did. But they're all saying, who sinned? Sometimes God has his own sovereign purposes in allowing these prolonged times of difficulty to the end that he will ultimately use it for his own glory. But the point is, when we are in the midst of it, it isn't fun. We don't understand and we wonder, how long? Where are you, God? By the way, this, this whole idea of uh, where are you, God, of, of not sensing the presence of God, uh, you know, the absence of God's presence is really hell. Uh, Jesus took our hell on the cross, in effect, and uh, we have him crying out here in Matthew 27, uh, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, 
That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew exactly what was going on. I think he's expressing the anguish that he's going through as far as uh, the sin of the world being placed upon him and, and the father turning his face away from him in that moment. In the end, the lost will be cast from God's presence. They finally will get what they want, only to discover the thing that you supposedly want is really the last thing anyone would ever want. And Jesus will say to the lost, depart from me. We read in 2 Thessalonians, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Well, praise the Lord, believers will never know the real experience of hell. But a little taste of it is when in the throes of a great struggle, we don't sense the presence of God. We don't sense his touch. We don't see his intervention. He seems distant and hidden. It's a terrible experience. And that's where David was. Verse 2, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? For the third time now, David cries out, how long? How long shall I take counsel in my soul? The sense here is that David just keeps working this through his soul on his own, day after day, and yet with no relief. He says, having sorrow in my heart daily. He's burdened about this. Now, haven't you been through something like this where something is really heavy on your heart and you muse over it day after day without any relief? There's no end in sight. Now, note David did not ultimately find the answer inside himself. Uh, he was trying to work it through, but to no avail. Verses 1 and 2 are David recounting his struggle with the problem. I always like this uh, quote from Corey Ten Boom. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. Well, this is ultimately where David ended up. He came to look to the Lord. In this psalm, David was really there now. Uh, he is looking to God. He isn't feeling it yet, I don't think, but he's looking to God. And in this, he will turn a corner, as we will see. But then he brings up a fourth how long. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Now your enemy is typically one who hates you, right? Enemies hate you. And they desire bad things to come upon you. Uh, David had his loyal supporters, but he also had his enemies. And right now they had the upper hand. Uh, if indeed this was the case where you had the government under Saul pursuing him, they were in the, the driver's seat, so to speak. They had the upper hand. Right now they were exalted over him in that sense. And David wonders, how long is God going to allow this to go on? Will you forget me forever, he has just said? Now he believes God is there. But why is he waiting so long to intervene? I mean, way back here, you promised me I'd be the king. Where are you? Why am I having to go through this year after year after year after year? That's really hard. Uh, there's a lesson here. We can't go by mere feelings. We have to go by faith. We cannot allow ourselves to be ruled by feelings. Now, this is easier said than done, and we are all human. And there is a balance, because God did make us feelings and all. Uh, I'm glad that, uh, you know, we do have feelings, right? Uh, it'd be terrible if my wife had no feelings, right? And it'd be worse yet if I had none, right? Uh, praise the Lord for feelings. They're indeed part of the human experience, and God does use them. But we can allow, 
cannot allow them to rule us. We cannot trust our feelings as the ultimate reality. Uh, we have to come back to God and the rock of his word. Uh, we live in a fallen world, and our feelings are affected by our fallenness. Feelings can be very deceptive, but God is greater than our feelings. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, here in 1 John 3.20, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. That's a great verse. You know, your heart can take you a lot of places. Your feelings can take you a lot of places. But God is greater. God is greater. And he knows all things. Well, after expressing to God exactly how he was feeling, and it's okay to do this, as long as we do it reverently, seems to me God appreciates transparency. After all, he already knows our hearts, right? It's not like, he, oh, my goodness, I didn't see that coming. He did. Uh, we just need to pour it out before him. Uh, that's really what David did. Well, after pouring out his lament, David then prayed very specifically. He had a specific request. And it's good to pray specifically. Eh, general prayers are fine, too. Um, you know, God bless the United States of America. Okay, that's good. <laughs> how about this? God bring repentance to the United States of America. That's, that's better. Uh, but how about more specifically? Lord, my neighbor next door needs repentance. I'm praying for them to come to repentance. I mean, it's good to pray specifically. Uh, all prayers are good, but yeah, specifically. Verse 3, consider and hear me, O Lord my God, enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. I mean, I think David felt the pressure here, like this is about to kill me. Ever felt that kind of pressure? There's been a few times in the ministry, my wife said, I really thought you might die. They're not sleeping at night or whatever. Uh, <laughs> but uh, tremendous pressure, I think, he was feeling here. Uh, consider and hear here is the sense of consider and answer me. David has gone a long time with the sense that God is not responding. So he's pleading for God to, actor, uh, to actively answer. He's desperate for God to respond. And he specifically asks for God to enlighten his eyes. Now, this request for enlightenment is understood in a couple of different ways. I looked up in the Old Testament how it is consistently used, but uh, I'll get to that in a moment. But some understand this as a request for insight uh, that will help him in this situation. You know, kind of like James, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And, and if you ask him faith, he'll give it to you. And, it, you know, we often need, and that, James is in the context of, of uh, wisdom that is needed for godly living. What's the appropriate way to handle this situation in a godly way? That's the idea of wisdom in James. Well, uh, the context here uh, more likely has the idea of strengthening and reviving encouragement, which would brighten his whole, his whole countenance. I mean, he is so down, it's like this is about to kill me. And really what he is desiring is that God would deliver him from a life-threatening situation which is like a dark cloud of discouragement over him at the moment. He says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. So, man, this is pretty serious. It's pointed out that God often waits until our prayers are desperate before he answers. You know what? God appreciates desperate prayers. He wants to be wanted. Hard times have a way of driving us deep into the breast of God. Desperate prayer looks passionately to God. I don't know about you, but some of the closest times I've been to the Lord are some of the worst times I've gone through. It is amazing how God uses that. 
It puts God in first place, seeks him above all else. He is the priority, total. This kind of praying moves the hand of God. We know from James 5, 16, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Although David had all kinds of emotions in his wilderness experience, he did ultimately trust God to direct his steps. I love this. Uh, this is a great verse here in Psalm 31, 15. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. What a great truth. Ultimately, our times are in God's hands. No matter what our feelings may be, the truth is God sovereignly controls our destiny. Verse 4, lest my enemies say I prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. David was concerned he might die, verse 3, and concerned that if the enemy prevailed over him, that they would gloat and celebrate. Now, as you think about, uh, you know, the whole situation with David, even though David was concerned how this might make him look, I think in the bigger picture, there's a real concern how this would make God look. I mean, after all, it was God who had David anointed to be the next king. What if he doesn't become the next king? What's that say about God? Uh, that would be really terrible. Uh, that would make God look really bad. Uh, and, and it's unthinkable. It can't happen. I mean, if God anoints him to be king, he's got to be the king. And so thinking it through, it seems to me David came back to his faith. He knew this very well. In fact, the whole land knew that David had been anointed to be the next king. Saul knew it as well. Uh, time and time again in the struggles of life, this is where we must come back to. And this is, this is where David came. Verse 5, but in light of all that he has said, how long, how long, how long, and I feel like I'm ready to die, enlighten me, revive me, encourage me, uh, but I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Uh, you have a statement of faith, a declaration of faith here. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says, the little word but indicates a transition from fear to faith and from questioning to claiming God's promises. Here is the key. After grappling within himself day in and day out about this miserable situation, David finally resolved to trust in God's mercy. Faith honors God and God honors faith. Now, the word mercy here is that Hebrew word, that very rich Hebrew word, hesed, hesed. You know, the King James translators initially didn't know exactly how to translate this, so they translated about 14 different ways. It's a, it's a very rich word that combines uh, nuances such as unconditional love, generosity, enduring commitment. It's often translated as loyal love, faithful love, loving kindness, unfailing love, or steadfast love. The word hesed is closely tied with God's covenant commitment to his people and has therefore been translated as covenant love. No, just uh, the connection here uh, between covenant and mercy uh, consistently. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy. Psalm 89, My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. And then again in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5, I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy, 
with those who love you and observe your commandments. Daniel 9, 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him. Uh, just a general statement here from gotquestions.org, which is a great source, a great reference. Uh, Hesse describes a sense of love and loyalty that inspires merciful and compassionate behavior towards another person. Hesed found some uh, 250 times in the Old Testament expresses an essential part of God's character. The core idea, and I should have underlined this, but the core idea of this term communicates loyalty or faithfulness within a relationship. There's really the idea. Loyalty or faithfulness. Thus, Hesed is closely related to God's covenant with his people Israel. As it relates to the concept of love, Hesed expresses God's faithfulness to his people. Well, one of the best definitions for hesed is faithful love. Because God is faithful, David put his trust in the Lord. You know what? He's worthy of our trust. Uh, he knew what God had promised, and he resolved to trust in the character of God. God is faithful to fulfill what he has promised. No matter how long it takes, someone has well said, we need to stop studying the problems and start studying the promises. Yeah, that's a good idea. And this is where trust or faith comes in. Faith takes God at his word. It resolves to trust God's word no matter the circumstances, no matter how long the delay seems to take. Now, when things are bleak, uh, we need to come back to God. We need to come back to our trust in God because he is faithful. He will fulfill his promises, and he can be depended upon. And it is amazing how the resolve to trust in the Lord changes our whole perspective. David's resolve to trust in the Lord set his heart to rejoicing in God's salvation. He now is really affirming God is going to deliver. He has to, if I'm going to be the king, let's say that's the circumstances, which many think it is. Uh, if he is going to be the king, he has to deliver him. And so he celebrated God's coming deliverance. He believed God would make it happen as promised. He did not know how, but he did know the faithful character of God. And this is what he came to rest in. In the depths of despair, we need to remember that God is a God of deliverance. This is what he specializes in. You know, it's interesting. God allows us to get into all kinds of trouble, and then he delivers us. That's what happened to, you know, Paul. Uh, I love his testimony in 2 Corinthians. Yes, we have the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. God put us so low, we were so desperate, we had nowhere to look but to God. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God. Yeah, well, that's where it should always be. Sometimes you've got to get to the very lowest place before you, you know, that's where we have to go. Who delivered us from so great a death? He delivered us and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. There's a lot of deliverance here. You notice that? Verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Rejoicing and singing go together. Singing portrays joyful worship. Now, it's one thing to sing, right? It's another thing to sing to the Lord. Uh, you know, sometimes there's a lot of singing, but how much singing to the Lord? You know, I don't know. I can't see people's hearts, Right? I just know myself sometimes. It's like, am I really singing to the Lord? I mean, I'm singing. <laughs> uh, David affirmed that he would sing to the Lord as a worshipful expression of his faith. I think that's very precious. When we sing to the Lord, it's, it's worship. 
Charles Spurgeon shared, there is not half enough singing in the world. He says, I remember a servant who used to sing while she was at the wash tub. Her mistress said to her, why, Jane, how is it that you are always singing? And she said, it keeps the bad thoughts away. Yeah, you know there's something about singing. Uh, you know, I, I, I always say Luther's quotable, and, uh, but, you know, I, I detest his baptismal regeneration teaching, but, boy, he said so many good things. But, uh, you know, one time he was going through a really rough time. He says, let's sing a song and startle the devil. How's that for a line? Let's sing a song and startle the devil. That's a great line. David is determined to sing because God has dealt bountifully with him. What a different perspective faith has brought. Now through the eyes of faith, he sees things differently. Before he was absorbed day in and day out, obsessing in his heart and in his soul over the problems. But now in trust, he sees the providential hand of God in providing for him in a great way. The idea of bountifully is the idea of, of overabundantly, supplying with overflowing goodness and generosity. Instead of saying, God, where are you? He now sees God's care in a big way. The perspective of trust sees things in a whole different light. Well, once we have the proper focus on God, we no longer zero in on just the problem. It's not like we deny it, but now our focus is on God, and we see the hand of God's care in so many ways, in both little things and big things. You know, every breath you get is because of God's goodness. David asked for God to enlighten him in verse 3, and then resolved to trust in the Lord. And in response, I believe God answered that prayer. David began the psalm overwhelmed by his feelings that God had forgotten him. But now in answer to that prayer, he sees that God has in fact dealt bountifully with him all along. He had been so focused on the problem, he failed to see the providential hand of God involved each step of the way. Problems tend to cloud our minds to the truth of God. I think it's part of the battle. It's part of our frail humanity. How important it is to realize we don't see everything especially in the crucible of troubling times, uh, when it seems we're just barely holding on. It's easy at such a time to agonize over, how long? Where are you, God? But again, we can't trust our feelings. However, we can trust the faithfulness of God, and that is key. Charles Spurgeon said, God is too good to be unkind, too wise to be mistaken, and when I cannot trace his hand, I can always trust his heart. How true that is. Well, how can we turn our sighing into singing, as David did? It starts by getting our focus on God. As we get back to the truth of God's faithful character and trusting in him, it turns our sorrow into singing. It's good to know that God is in charge of the how long. And that he can be trusted with it. Life is about trust. That's the big idea. I would say that's the big idea in this psalm and really consistently throughout the scriptures. No matter the hardship, it always comes back to the issue of trust. Trust. Am I going to trust God in this situation? I don't care what you're going through. That's always the issue. You know these verses, right? Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
Lean not under your own understanding. I mean, that'll, that'll really mess with you. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. Trust, trust in him. He's the good shepherd, and he's out front leading. Psalm 56, 3 and 4, when I'm afraid, what will I do? I will trust in you. In God, I, I will praise his word. In God, I put my trust. I will not fear. I love these verses. Isaiah 26, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. I mean, that's, where do you, where do you find this kind of peace? You, you come back to trust. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. You're looking for strength? Trust in the Lord. And then Nahum 1, 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. He knows. David had all kinds of internal struggles, wondering about how long. He asked the Lord to encourage him. By the way, that's a good prayer. Lord, I need encouragement. I need, I need revived. Uh, uh, enlighten my eyes. Encourage me. And come back to the whole issue. I need to trust in him. I need to camp there. David asked the Lord to encourage him, and then he resolved to trust in the Lord. His turning the corner response was trust. To trust in God's faithful love and rejoice in his salvation. No matter what we're going through, that's a great prescription. Trust in the Lord and rejoice in his salvation. Well, may God help us to that end. Let's stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer.